Wow, so good. That was so good. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus and thank you that you are here with us through the presence of your Holy Spirit, Lord. You are right here. And as we look now at such a challenging topic, Lord, the truth about sin, that we're all infected, we're all guilty before you, yet there is hope because there's a risen Savior who died in our place. Lord, we ask that your Spirit would open our hearts and minds, each one of us, to what you want to speak to us through your Word. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, it's so good to be here with you again this morning. Uh, You know, I've had some really great conversations uh, over the last day with several of your teachers and some of your uh, staff, you know, support, administrative staff. And I just, you know, I, I think it's so cool. It's, it's really unique uh, what you have here at Western Christian High School. I mean, your, your counselors, they care so much about you. It just comes out in their conversation. And it's really a beautiful thing that they are so invested in God's call to be here at this school, to be here with you this week. They care so much about your lives and what God is doing in your life. It's just an incredible uh, thing that you have. Uh, one of the teachers I met last night, Mr. French, I'm not sure where he is, but uh, as I was talking to Mr. French, found out he, he is a Marine. And so as I was talking to him, I mentioned that my grandfather, James Hawley, was a Marine. And he corrected me, he said, no, he is a Marine. Even though he's dead, he's still a Marine. You never stop being a Marine, right? So um, my grandfather, he joined the Marines 1936 during the Great Depression served from 1936 to 1944, and so he found himself in, guess what, World War II. (laughs) He was actually stationed at Pearl Harbor when Japan attacked, and we entered the war. From there, he uh, went to a battle called Midway, which uh, they actually made a movie about it recently. He ended up as a tail gunner in a plane, but when Midway started, his commanding officer told him, okay, here's what's going to happen. We're going to be attacked, and every single one of you are going to die. We're going to fight to the last man standing. He told my grandpa and another Marine said, the two of you are going to guard all the records on the base. And when the enemy comes in, burn them because back then it was no electronic stuff. It was all paper. Uh, Fortunately, the next day they changed plans and he ended up as a tail gunner in an airplane. He survived. But the biggest battle he was in, the last battle he was in, was called Guadalcanal. And this was a horrific battle. If you know anything about World War II history, this was a key battle, a key turning point in the war in the Pacific. But it was a horrible battle battle. Uh, It lasted for months. It got even down to situations of hand-to-hand combat. I've heard some of the different stories from my grandfather's life that he finally was willing to share towards the end of his life. Uh, But they also got sick. He got dysentery and malaria, which is just like dysentery is like diarrhea on steroids. And then some malaria gives you these crazy fevers and you feel like you're going to die. And at one point, the fighting got so intense and so many men were sick, they were really just, they set up this triage station where they're just sending a pile of bodies of dead men over here and a medical tent over here. And my grandfather, falling in and out of consciousness, wounded and sick with both of these diseases, he found himself being carried by two Marines. One Marine had his wrists, the other Marine had his ankles, and they're just carrying him like this. And as he came in and out of consciousness, he heard them arguing over whether or not he was alive or dead. He heard one Marine say, this guy's dead, put him over here in the pile of bodies. And the other one said, no, he's alive, let's put him over here in the medical tent. And he realized he might be thrown and buried alive if he didn't do something. So he cried out just like, just made a noise. 
And then the other Marine who said he was alive said, see, I told you he was alive. Didn't you hear that? Put him over here in the medical tent. Like, all right, fine. So he survived. I'm very thankful for that. I wouldn't be here today if that Marine hadn't heard him and fought for his life. But the reason I tell you the story this morning is because as we even saw just in the video, every single one of us is infected with something that is killing us. Every single one of us is facing certain death, not just physically, but also spiritually, but we also have the opportunity to be rescued if we will cry out to the only one who can save us. It's there for us. You know, Matthew 1.23, speaking about the birth of Jesus, uh, says this, She, that's Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Friends, you know that's what the name Jesus actually means. It means he will save you from your sins. He is a Savior. Save us from what? Save us from sin. As we continue here in our series, Truth Be Told, we're going to talk today about the truth of sin. We're going to cover John chapter 7 through 9, but really just zoom in on one story in chapter 8. So if you got your Bibles, John 7 is where we'll kind of start. You can just follow along. But my hope this morning is that for those of us here today who know Christ, like you've put your faith in Christ maybe even uh, some years ago, and you walk with Christ, that we would simply grow in our depth of gratitude for God's grace and God's forgiveness in our life and our passion maybe to make Him known to those who are without Christ. Uh, But for those of us who are here today who you're not sure what you believe about Jesus, or just flat out you would even say, if you were honest, I I reject Jesus. I don't don't embrace Christ or following Christ. Uh, that, That we would see the depth of our need for God's grace, the depth of our need for His forgiveness and the depravity, the the depth of our sin. So in John 7, verse 37, we read this. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So what's going on here? There's a feast. It's called the Feast of Booths uh, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And what it was, was it was kind of like a big national holiday camping trip in the nation of Israel, almost like a reenactment. I don't know if you have reenactments in Upland. In Fresno, every year we get this gigantic Civil War reenactment where all these like adults come and they dress up like Civil War people and they camp out at this gigantic park and then they have this big fake battle. It's actually pretty amazing. People come from all over the place to watch it. You know, guys walking around like Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass talking like they're those guys. Um, but this is kind of what they're doing here. They, they were reenacting the time in Israel's history when they escaped from Egypt, from the slavery there, wandered in the desert before entering the promised land. They had to live in tents. And so what they would do is families would go out, the whole nation would go out and camp in these, these uh these booths, they'd make them out of tree branches, and they would just live for a week out there celebrating that God was with them and that God had delivered them. And so that's what this feast is that Jesus is talking, or that's being talked about here in John. And also during this, they had this elaborate ceremony involving water. They would take, uh, the priest would take this gigantic pitcher, this golden pitcher, fill it with water from the pool, a place called the Pool of Siloam in Jerusalem, 
dump it into a big silver basin. And while he's doing it, all the people were singing and shouting and, and uh, you know, blasting trumpets and all this stuff, just celebrating. And, and one of the things that water represented in this ceremony was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that was promised in the Old Testament that would come when the Messiah appeared. And so now here's Jesus. He steps up right in the middle of this big national holiday on the biggest day of the, of the week. And he says, hey, all this symbolic stuff you're doing with the water, like it's happening with my arrival that whoever believes in me, the Holy Spirit will be poured out on them. They will receive the Spirit. And, and if you think about this, we think about water, right? We talked about this a little bit last night as well, but water hydrates us. We live because of water. We can't live without water. I've heard a lot of the counselors just saying, hey, good job drinking all that water this week, right? So good job, you guys, if you're drinking your water. Because if we don't drink a lot of water, we get more tired, we get headaches. Sometimes we think we're hungry, but we're really thirsty because our body's dehydrating. But eventually, we would die without water. But water has other purposes in our lives. It cleanses us, right? It, it refreshes us. And Jesus is saying, I want to give you living water for your soul. I want to cleanse you. I want to refresh you. But as he talks here about the Spirit poured out to us who would believe in him, he's saying, I want to do life with you. I, I want to live in relationship that is 24-7, that you would never be forsaken. You would never be alone. I don't know if you remember back to the first message in Genesis 3, but the lie of Satan, right? The, the key lies. Number one is that you can do life without God. You, you can be autonomous. You can do your own thing. And the second lie is that you can choose what's right or wrong. Based on the voices in your head and the desires of your heart, you get to decide. But Jesus is saying, no, those things are the way of death. Let's do life together. I'm living water for your soul. So as we move into chapter 8, then we get to see what Jesus, this living water, what it looks like when he saves a person from their sins. Look at verse 2 in chapter 8. It says, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, he commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. So first of all, let me explain that this woman was caught in the act of adultery, so she's having sex with somebody outside of marriage, and they're bringing her right before Jesus in the midst of all this crowd of people, and they're saying she should be stoned because that's what the law of Moses says. Now, the stoning he's talking about here has nothing to do with smoking anything. This is a stone that gigantic rocks you would pick up and actually throw at a person and hurl at them until they died. Gruesome. Now, as we look at this, I have a few questions that come to my mind is, how did they catch her in the very act? I mean, are these guys like peeping toms, right? Or well, they spying on her? The other question is like, where's the guy, right? She was in, there was two people in this act of adultery, but it's only her who's brought before Jesus. This, this really smells, it smells like something real shady, like a setup. In fact, we're told that in verse 6, they said it to test him. They want to bring a charge against Jesus because by the letter of the law, this was an actual the punishment that was prescribed in Leviticus. Yes, stone somebody to death for committing adultery. 
But they know that if Jesus says, well, don't stone her because they know Jesus is compassionate, then they can say, you haven't followed God's law. However, if Jesus uh, says, well, go ahead and, and do what you plan on doing here, then the people will see him as harsh and punitive and he'll lose followers. So they're really trying to trap Jesus. So it's interesting to see Jesus' response, verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, the text doesn't tell us what exactly Jesus wrote. So we don't know, but we can kind of, you know, make some guesses. Perhaps he was writing down um, the names of the men who were there, standing there with the stones. Maybe he was writing down the names of women who they had all had affairs with, because they probably had some of them at least. Maybe he was writing down the name of the guy who was missing. Like, where's he at, right? I think what he was writing was their names and their deepest and darkest sin, their secrets, starting with the oldest and moving to the youngest. But we don't really know. But we do know that it has an effect. It takes the attention off the woman. And then verse 7, they keep kind of pressing Jesus. As they continue to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. So whatever he writes, the response is effective, undeniable. Verse 9, but when they heard it, they went away one by one beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Does no one condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Friends, this is the grace of God put on display so powerfully in this moment. And you know, to fully appreciate grace, to fully appreciate the forgiveness of sins, to fully appreciate the good news of the gospel, we have to understand the bad news. We have to understand what sin is. So let's take a few moments here and talk about sin. In Greek, the word sin is hamartia, which simply means to miss the mark. So what it means is anytime we miss perfection, anytime we miss the perfection, not what we think is perfect, but what God declares to be perfect, we're missing the mark. So unless you're like Hawkeye, who just hits that bullseye every time with his bow and arrow, when it comes to living a perfect moral life, we are missing the mark over and over and over again, more times than we can even possibly imagine. There's sins of what you call a commission, which is when we willfully choose to do stupid things that we know God says not to do. But there's also sins of what you might call omission, which is when we fail to do things that are right. So we know we should do certain things like, hey, I should encourage that person instead of make fun of them, or I should get up and read my Bible, or I should go and serve somebody, and we just don't do it because we, we just decide we don't want to do it for whatever reason. Those are sins of omission. So we're constantly missing the mark. We're constantly falling short. But, but to make it even more simple than that, sin is trying to do life without God. It's to try to live an autonomous life. 
It's to go about my day without ever thinking about God or praying about anything or acknowledging Him. I may not be willfully sinning or anything like that, but I'm trying to just sort of live my life without God. The Bible calls that living in the flesh. Now, when you see the word flesh in the New Testament, it's simply talking about the part of us that wants to do things our own way, not God's way. There's a part of us that just wants to live however we want to live. Now, if you're in Christ, if you've put your faith in Christ, you have that new birth that takes place through the Holy Spirit, which we talked about yesterday. But even as a follower of Christ, you experience a battle. There's the Holy Spirit battling against your flesh, and you feel that battle. But the cool thing is you feel the battle. You know, man, I want to follow God, but part of me is tugging me to do my own thing and go back to my old ways or even new ways of sinning. But there's that battle. We're aware of that battle. But see, if we have not put faith in Christ, if we have not been born again with the Holy Spirit in our our lives, then we're just living in the flesh, autonomous from God, and we don't even know what we're doing. When I was your age, when I was in high school, I was living in the flesh. I was just doing my own thing, and I wasn't even aware of it. And many of you here today, if you're living completely in the flesh, you're not aware of it. Listen to what Romans 8, verses 5 through 8 say. It says, For those who are according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, I don't share this with you to judge you. I share this with you because it's the truth. And I want to share with you the truth in love because I want you to have the greatest hope that you could ever have, which is in Christ Jesus. God's word is clear, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we, we live in a world that is an active rebellion against God, a world that is steeped in humanity. And as human beings, we are sinners born into it, but then also we make choices to actively sin. And, and if you think about it, in our world today, that word sin is hardly ever used except in like spiritual or religious types of settings and places, right? We've taken the word sin in our culture, which used to be used a lot, and we've replaced it with a new word. The word is mistake. So yeah, I, I've made a lot of mistakes. People are willing to say, let me even ask you to raise your hands. How many of you be willing to say, yeah, I've made a mistake in my life? Okay, most of us, right? Now let me ask you a second question. How many of you are willing to say, I've committed sin Okay, it looks like almost as many hands, not quite as many, right? Because we're not so sure, like, well, have I really sinned? I've I've certainly made a mistake. So let let me talk about this for just a moment. When we use the word mistake to describe everything that goes wrong in our world, we might see, for example, a politician gets on stage before cameras and lights, and we know that this man has uh, been accused of harassing dozens of his staff, sexually harassing them. He's uh, had affairs. He's blown up his marriage. He's messed up his city. He's done all kinds of things. And he gets in front of the cameras and he says, I've made some mistakes. I'm like, okay. Or we see the CEO of uh, some business, like a Ponzi scheme, right, where he's swindled people, thousands of people out of millions of dollars, people that were going to retire. And he's effectively destroyed thousands of lives. And he says, you know, as I got into this, I wanted to help people, but I made some mistakes. 
And something in us, it just doesn't feel like that's the right word. Because we, we think, okay, a mistake is something you kind of do unintentionally that you can correct pretty easily, right? Like, okay, I thought the homework deadline was tomorrow, but it was actually today. Now, only if you're being honest, right? It's got to be an honest mistake. <laughs> like, if you knew it was today and you say that, then that's, that's called a lie. That's a sin. But if you didn't know, it's a mistake, right? Okay, next time. Or you text the wrong person, right? That can be awkward, too, depending on what you're texting. But that's a mistake. So why, why does it feel like when, when a man who has covered up a certain uh, behavior for five years, he has planned to do this thing. He has gotten on a plane and flown across the country so he can commit this mistake why does that word not fit? It doesn't sound like it's powerful enough to describe what he or she has done. And the reason it doesn't feel that way is because it's not. It's not a mistake. It's a sin. Because when we use the word sin, we have no wiggle room to blame it on someone else. We have to take ownership for what we've done. Yes, I am a sinner. I'm not just a mistaker. And if we think not, if we can't agree that we've all sinned, let me just give you a few easy examples. Have you ever, whether out loud or even just in your mind, have you ever thought or muttered something about a fellow classmate or a teacher that wasn't exactly a blessing? Maybe it didn't put them in a good light. Maybe it was something bad you said about them or something in anger you said about them. Have you ever done that in your whole life? That's a sin. Uh, have you ever told a half-truth to make yourself look better? That's a sin. Have you ever covered something up and not said it? That's a sin. In anger, have you ever said something that you later regretted? That's a sin. Have you ever looked at someone who wasn't your spouse, and that would include if you're not married yet, with sexual desire? The Bible says that's a sin. See, we've all sinned. All have sinned, Romans 3.23 tells us, and fall short of the glory of God. It's to miss the mark of God's perfection, deliberately or unintentionally, committing or omitting, whether in actions or in words or in thoughts, things that break God's law. And as people create an image of God, which is every single one of us, as image bearers, it's to misrepresent the one whose image we bear. It's to misrepresent God. And so what we find is at the end of the day, we're so full of sin, so prone to sin, that we can't even really measure the depth of it. Genesis 3 tells us that sin entered the world shortly after Adam and Eve sinned, uh, took the fruit, right? The one tree God said not to eat from, they ate from that tree. And then what did they do immediately after that is they tried to blame. Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and they tried to cover up in shame. They hid from God. And from that moment to this present day throughout history, it's the same behavior repeated over and over again. We sin, we try to blame someone else, or we try to cover it up. And then Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death. And as we talked about before, when it comes to death, Scripture describes death in three different ways. There's the physical death, which we all know we're going to face one day. One day, all of us will die. I know when you're as young as most of you are in this room, you barely think about that, but, but it is a reality. We will all physically one day die. Hebrews uh, chapter 9, verse 27 says, it's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. But then there's also something that's called spiritual death, which you can actually be physically alive 
but spiritually dead because you have no relationship with God. It means you're dead in your spirit. You haven't been made alive in Christ yet. Ephesians 2.1 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So he's talking to people who are physically alive. He's saying at one point in your life, you were dead spiritually. So you can be walking alive, but spiritually dead. And then there's eternal death, which is separation of the body and soul from God for eternity, which is described in the book of Revelation, for example. It's called the second death. That's to die in our sins, physically die, spiritually already dead, and then to die and then to be separated from God. Um, Because God is loving, but He's also just. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7 say that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, or some translations say, who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And this is a hard teaching, especially in today's uh, culture, in our day and age. This is very difficult because it feels like, well, isn't that not loving, that, that God would actually punish sin? But see, God's love doesn't cancel out His righteousness. He's not a moral coward. He doesn't hide sin. He doesn't hide from sin. He confronts sin, and ultimately, God destroys sin. And if you really think about it, all of us want a God of justice. See, we see things that happen. We, we hear maybe in the news or you even see something in your own life. You see an injustice. You see somebody who's brutally murdered, an innocent person just picked off the street, brutally murdered. Or, or, or we see somebody who's, you know, all their money is taken from them by somebody who tricked them, pretended they loved them or whatever, right? Name the injustice. Watch a movie sometimes. It gets you all worked up. You want to see whoever get revenge on whoever, Right. And so we have that sense of justice. We have that sense of righteousness. Our problem is we want to determine what deserves punishment and what doesn't. We usually are good with other people experiencing justice. We just don't want that justice for ourselves. And so what we have to do is submit to know the, the one who created us, the one who defines truth, he's the one who determines what sin is punished and what is not. And If we think Jesus, because of his compassion, might have sort of watered down the problem of sin, we need to take a closer look at his teachings. What did he actually say about sin? He never coddled us. He actually raised the bar higher because he made it not just about outward actions, but about what's going on in our hearts. In Matthew 5, he said, hey, you've heard don't commit adultery. I say to you, don't even look at another person with lust in your heart or you've committed adultery in your heart. He says, hey, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I'm telling you, don't even harbor hatred in your heart towards a person because that's murder of the heart. So he raised the bar. He even said this in John 7, verse 7. He says, the world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. So Jesus did not water anything down, and he knew hatred would come when sin was called out. He wants us to know that we're actually far worse off than we could ever imagine. He wants us to admit we're sinners. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But friends, understand that He wants us to know the bad news so that we can fully embrace the good news. He wants us to admit we're sinners so that we aren't left where we're at, but that we can be restored, that we can be redeemed. You know, paradoxically, when our culture refuses to use the word sin and says, no, we're just going to call things mistakes, people are basically good, 
and we make mistakes. There's no sin. There's no sin nature. When we choose to take that route, what we do is we remove the need for true forgiveness. And when we remove the need for forgiveness, we remove the possibility of redemption. And I think that partially explains why we see all of this cancel culture going on in our world today, right? The idea that, hey, you, you've done something, you've said something that offends my truth. You maybe even did it 10 years ago, but I don't care. Because you said that, because you did that, because you posted that, I don't want anything to do with you. I want to cancel you out. It should be just as if you never existed. No possibility of forgiveness, no possibility of redemption or reconciliation. It's just you are canceled. You are done. Because in a culture that refuses to acknowledge sin, we remove the possibility of forgiveness and therefore the possibility of redemption. And what we need, friends, is we don't need to talk about mistakes. We don't need to talk about canceling each other out. What we need is grace. We need truth. We need love. We need forgiveness. We need redemption. Because the same verse that says the wages of sin is death also says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is how a loving God who forgives sins does not leave the guilty unpunished. He takes the punishment for sin upon himself. He resolves it through the death of Jesus on the cross. In John chapter 8, verse 28, Jesus said this, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, so here he is prophesying that he's going to be crucified. He says, then you will know that I am he. I am he. I am the one who created you. I am the one who has come to give you life. I am the one who is dying in your place. And then you will see me risen from the grave, offering complete forgiveness. You know, it's kind of like this uh, parable I heard, a story about two friends who grew up uh, together, two boys. They grew up, one of them became a judge. And the other one, he kind of went into a life of crime and he murdered somebody. And he was put on trial. And the crazy thing was, his friend, his best friend growing up was the judge of that trial. And the man was found guilty of first-degree murder. And now the day of sentencing came. And a lot of people started talking, like, what's the judge going to do? He was his best friend growing up. Maybe he's going to go easy on him. But if he goes easy on him, then there's no justice. And then you can just get away with murder and nobody cares, right? No big deal. So the day of sentencing came. And the jury found the man guilty of first-degree murder. The judge lowered his gavel. He said, the defendant has been found guilty of first-degree murder, and his sentence will be death, death row. And everybody's like, whoa, justice is served, but that's got to be hard. But then you know what that judge did is he stood up, and he took off his robe, and he walked over to his friend, and he embraced him. And he said, and I will serve your sentence. Friends, that's a picture of the gospel. Yes, there's justice for sin, but God pays the price himself. There's one solution, one remedy, one cure, universally available to all. Timothy Keller puts it this way, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Back to John 8 and verse 12, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that's what light does. It illuminates in the darkness. It reveals all that's there, all that's really going on, 
But then as the light of life, Jesus says, I will also come and, and as the light of the world, I will bring light to your life. I will show you the truth about who you are, but I will bring change. I will bring transformation. I'm living water. I will cleanse you. I will refresh you. I will do life with you through my spirit. And, you know, as we go back to the woman at the well, how might you relate to her today? Like, I'm not saying you were caught in the very act of adultery like her and about to be stoned to death. But, but what in your life, if it were to be, you were to be caught in the act of doing it, would be absolutely humiliating for you. Like maybe it's something in the past. Maybe it's something that you're going through right now. But if that, if that act, whether it's something you've, you've actually done, something you've said, something you've just thought about a lot, if that was somehow able to be blasted on the internet, permanently there, never to be erased, put on all the social media outlets, TMZ, everything, right? If that was put out there, and you could never take it back, and everybody in the world could see it anytime they want, what would make you feel like that woman who's caught in adultery? We all have something. We all have many things, probably. I think back to a time some years ago where with one of my sons, I just, I unloaded on him in anger. There was something going on that I felt was extremely disrespectful and wrong, and I just unloaded. And I wish to God I could take back the things I said and what I did in that moment, but I can't. I would be ashamed if that was posted for everybody to see. What do you have in your life? I have more things than that, by the way. That's just an example. We all have something. We all have many things. And you know what? The light of the world, Jesus, he knows it all. And he cares. And he still wants to have a relationship with you and walk with you and embrace you. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a, a, a young man who has been born blind and he actually finds him and he, he spits in the ground and he makes clay out of the spit. It's kind of gross. And he puts it on the dude's eyes. And he tells him to wash his eyes off in the pool of Siloam. And then the guy can see. The reason Jesus did that is because making clay was considered work. So he just wanted to make the Pharisees angry. And it worked. They got really mad. They got so mad that they took this blind man. They kicked him out of the synagogue because he was defending Jesus. They're like, who is this man who healed you on the Sabbath? And he's like, look, he must be from God. He healed me. And they're like, you don't know anything. Get out of here. It'd be kind of like, you know, being kicked out of the synagogue was like the central place of life. So it'd be like you getting kicked out of both school and church and so never come back. And it'd be pretty traumatizing. But then Jesus comes to him, verse 35. He heard that they put him out and he says, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. And we have contrasting images here. We have a man who's born physically blind, but now he can physically see and spiritually see because Jesus has healed him in both ways. We have the Pharisees who have never been physically blind, but they're spiritually blind. And, and what is the difference? They're dead in their sins. And the difference is that the blind man knows he needs Jesus, and the Pharisees don't realize that they need Jesus. And, and how about you? Do you acknowledge sin in your life? And what's your solution to deal with it? I know for me in my life, it took me recognizing I was a sinner to actually embrace a relationship with God. When I was at a place in life where you were at, 
I had heard the truth about who Jesus was. I'd, I'd, you know, I'd been given a Christian worldview at, at one point, but I never really understood why Jesus had to die. It just didn't like, you know, why does he have to actually die on a cross? Maybe he's showing us how much he loves us, but it didn't really make sense to me. And then as I grew up and our family drifted from church, I wasn't in the church, I wasn't in a Christian school, I had nothing to connect me to Christ, and I was really just living my life, doing all kinds of stupid things. You know, my last name's Holly. When I graduated high school, a lot of people signed my yearbook, Alcoholy. It just gives you an idea of the kind of person I was, the kind of life I was living. And when I was 19, an actual non-Christian friend invited me to go to church. He just wanted, he's like, I want to go to church, so we started going to church. By the way, never underestimate people who you might think are the furthest from God. They, they might actually be hungry enough to, to go to church with you if you'd ask them. Let them say no for themselves, right? Side note. But as I was in church, I heard the gospel afresh. And for the first time, my eyes were open. It really had to be something that God's Spirit did, but my eyes were open that I am a sinner. I'm guilty before God. I need forgiveness. And that's what caused me to truly embrace the good news is I realized there's bad news. I've hurt God. I've hurt other people. I've been rude. I've been disrespectful. I've been selfish. I've been pleasure-seeking. I've done all these things that make me guilty. And that's when I put faith in Christ. And that's when he began to change my life. Well, as we consider sin, just remember this. There's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time, And we'll talk more about that tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again that you are here. You are with us. Thank you that though there is a reality of sin, Lord, something that is not popular to talk about today, there's no true good news if there's not bad news. There's no true hope if there's not despair. There's no true forgiveness if there's not sin. There's no true redemption if there's not the cross. And so, Lord, we embrace now the truth that in Christ all can be forgiven, past, present, and future, and there can be an eternal hope. And I pray that you would lead lead each one of us to a decision that following you, embracing you as the living water, the living hope, the bread of life, the light of the world, is where you're calling each one of us. I pray these things in Jesus' name.